All right. Man, it's just great to hear a story. You know, like, people can, like, fight the Bible. They can fight the historicity of the Bible. They can fight theology. But you can't argue the power of a changed life. That's right. When Jesus gets a hold of somebody. And uh, thank you guys for sharing your story. Uh, those recovery stories are important and help encourage maybe somebody in this room. Maybe you're sitting there and you're on the other side of that and uh, you're in a hopeless spot. And maybe you've just been fighting this all by yourself. Maybe you thought that the church wouldn't let you walk through that. And uh, I'm hoping that just our little conversation today and this emphasis this month helps you to take that first step and, and maybe try taking a new step in your life and aiming toward recovery in your life. This is Lisa Farst. She's our uh, recovery alive. And, you know, I keep saying CR. You're going to have just to, you know, forgive us. Sometimes <laughs> we're going to say CR, RA. They were in transition from Celebrate Recovery to Recovery Alive, but she is our ministry director for Recovery Alive, and I've just asked her to help maybe just answer a couple of questions maybe some other folks are having about Recovery Alive in particular and about our recovery ministry. So uh, for those in the room who might be a little unfamiliar with what recovery ministry is about, you know, what's, what's the goal of that kind of work? Well, the ultimate goal is to restore the marred image of God in a person because we're all created in the image of God. Uh, but we all have some dysfunctional parts about our lives, character flaws, and things that we wrestle with. And so Recovery Alive is about helping facilitate a lifestyle change, moving from whatever is dysfunctional in our lives to a more healthier lifestyle. And it's also like to instill hope because many of us struggle with feeling like, will I ever get there? Will I ever do better or feel better or be more healthier in my life? And the other thing is I look at my leaders as like tour guides to help, you know, pave a path and show people how to love one another as a community and stuff. So that's the ultimate goal, and restoration. I think that community piece is so important. Sanctification, actually. Yeah. Sanctification process. Well, and, and you know, there's, there's ways and words we use to talk about dysfunction or hurt or pain. And at the ultimate core of it is sin, our sin that we struggle with, the sins against us sins that we have committed Sorry. ourselves and, and, and really walking through how do I reckon that and how do I take steps you know, to, to make those things right with God ultimately mm -hmm. and make things right with others and try to find you know, steps forward in that. I think most people when they hear about recovery have a very narrow you know, uh, target and they go, well, that's good for those people that need it. You know? right. um, and the, those in drug addiction. Right, so help, help broaden it out. What is, who okay. is recovery for? And, and really, who's coming to celebrate recovery or right. to recovery alive? Sorry. So uh, recently I took a poll in the room just to kind of see what issues were represented in the room. And I was actually surprised myself. Uh, the top two were anxiety and depression. The second uh, issue was codependency, like trying to fix people and can't say no to others. Food and body image issues was third on the list. Then trouble managing the anger. And fifth was adult children of family dysfunction. So those of us that grew up in dysfunctional families, and now we're adults and we're trying to grapple with that. Number six was actually chemical dependency and alcohol use. And then seven, there was a tie between individuals uh, working through physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, both male and female. And it tied as well with uh, male and females working through um, sexual addiction. And then eighth issue that stood out was love and relationship issues, like 
can't be alone going from one relationship to another or just not knowing how to love others. So, yeah. And I think, again, uh, that has been misconceived in the culture because, again, the 12 steps and and those kind of things did come out of recovery from addiction uh, culture, but it's a broader broader understanding, right? You know, I mean, to realize that you can't control, your, your life's unmanageable, to be able to turn over care and control to the Lord, ultimately, to let Him help you and fix you from the inside out and help you walk you through that sanctification process, forgiving other people, and then mm-hmm. moving forward and ministering to others. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful process. It really is the process of discipleship. Really you think is. about it. Yeah. It's discipleship. Yeah. Showing others how to be more like God and dealing with things that get in the way with our lives. Yeah. So one big aspect of Recovery Alive is confidentiality. And anonymity. Those are big words. Those are three dollar words today. Anonymity. Anonymity. That's hard to say. say Yeah. (laughs) Being anonymous. Um, So how? How? Why is that so important? And how does that function in RA? Well, anonymity and confidentiality are protective measures. So, um, and I think at times we confuse anonymity with secrecy, uh, but it's not. And anonymity and confidentiality—they're two separate things. So. Basically, people need to have a safe place to go to where they can talk about the shameful issues, things that their deepest, darkest secrets without feeling like they're going to be judged and labeled by other people. And they should also have that expectation that whatever they share is going to stay in that circle of people that they disclose that to. So um, anonymity, you know, some individuals don't want others to know that they're going to a meeting. It could even jeopardize a job or something like that. Um, Most of the time, it's fear of being judged by other people. And so um, if you come to Recovery Alive, you're not going to, you know, we don't disclose, you know, who's here and who's not attending and that type of thing. So it's a safe place. And then it also protects a person from being identified as a certain type of person. Mm -hmm. Uh, You will hear along the lines of people saying, oh, they're an addict, or they're a meth head, or they're a suicide risk, or something like that. That's wrong, because that's not who they are. That's right. That is something that they're grappling with or wrestling with. Their identity is they are a child of God, right? Well, I don't introduce myself as, hey, I'm Lisa, I'm fatty. (laughs) Right? Or, hello, I'm Lisa, I'm depressed. We don't do that, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way to protect people from um, being misrepresented or misidentified as something that they're wrestling to or something that's been done to, to them that yeah. they're wrestling with, you know, so. And I think it's important when somebody, somebody knows when you walk in the room at an RA meeting, somebody's not going to walk up to you and say, hey, why are you here? That's right. Nobody will ask You know, you like. It's just, it's, it's assumed everybody's working on their stuff. Yeah, you know? trust. Trust is a huge factor in healing. Yeah. I need to be able to trust you that you're going to keep my confidence. And I think as people grow and as people grow in their recovery, as they find some victory there, and we see people maturing in that, they, they come forward. I mean, I see that on stage at RA. People will identify, hey, I'm so-and-so, and I have struggled with X, Y, Z. Yeah. And it's a way, really, of saying it out loud. And that's uncomfortable for some people who aren't used to that, but in, in many ways, it eliminates the shame of it. Because I think the, yeah. the idea of us not being able to say, I, I'm not okay, or I've been through some things in my life, we need to be honest. Right. And 
you know, confidentiality is basically anything that's shared between two people or a group of people. It stays with them. It stays there. It's a safe place. Now, there are times that uh, confidentiality needs to be suspended, and that's if a person yeah. discloses that they have intentions of harming themselves or harming another person. And harming another person goes beyond just physical, like threatening to sure. annihilate someone. Sometimes we uh, individuals will engage in behavior that is emotionally damaging to other people. And so we will suspend confidentiality and have discussions with family or people that need to talk, talk things out. So One thing we're, we've talked about you know, in launching RA and kind of changing to this program is that there's more of a gospel-centered approach to this? And how yeah. do you see that? How would you... How would you Celebrate Recovery is an amazing program, and I, I still will be using a lot of Celebrate Recovery yeah. materials. Celebrate Recovery put a lot of emphasis on the 12 steps. This is how you recover. And then, uh, you know, being in accountability uh, with others, being in, you know, among people... And then they would use scriptures to support that process. So Recovery Alive is a little bit different. Uh, Recovery Alive weighs very heavy on you need a relationship with God. And the power of God is what helps us change. We need God's first and foremost. And then it's about being with others in accountability and support and strength. And then here's the process, the 12 steps. Here's a path. A way to be able to heal up yeah. and all of that is supported by scripture as well so it's a little bit of a different sure, approach sure so maybe somebody's out there and they're on the fence and they're thinking okay that i might could benefit from a program like that what's your elevator pitch to try to get them to come just, just come sniff us out you know where we're um we would love to have you there's a free dinner at five o'clock you don't have to say anything you'll have worship a little bit smaller scale because this is a bigger stage here but uh, we love to worship. We love to celebrate what God's doing. It's part of our testimony. And you'll find that there are some of us that are much more braver now and confident in our recovery. We say that uh, I'm, I'm encouraging people that have been in recovery for a while to recover out loud so others don't die silently. Yeah. And there's a lot of us in this room, if we're honest, we're dying silently. And we're afraid to talk about it. We've got a place for you to come. You'll be welcomed. Nobody's going to ask you anything or, you know, try to pull something out of you. Just come, check us out, and I hope that you feel welcome. And there's leaders that are uh, from RA that are here in our congregation yeah, wearing a black, black shirt. Black shirt looks like this um, if you have any questions. The other thing that might push you over the fence is three, uh, three things. Chicken fingers, macaroni and cheese, <laughs> yeah, and green beans tonight for dinner at 5 o'clock. Y'all come yep. be a part of Yeah. And we've got recovery for uh, the youth as well, and also the children, and there's child care available, so there's no reason why you can't come. We've, we've got it all under control. So just to well, give a not under control. We can't <laughs> control things, but we got it covered. <laughs> so to give a little bit of an update, how, how many people are coming now to So January of 2023, we had 25 coming on a given night. Now we're running in the 120s. Amen. Yeah. Amen. So God's doing something. Amen. Thank you. All right, guys, we're going to be in Mark uh, chapter 1 today. We're, we're going to be in the book of Mark for quite some time, uh, probably the next couple of months. I'm pretty pumped to take a deep dive into one book. So we're going to be in Mark for a long time. And 
If you're new with us, you came the right Sunday because we are kicking off this new series and we're going to be in this book for a while. Um, if you're not a part of the daily devotionals that come out on email, fill out that connect card and put daily email, um, put your email address there and we'll make sure that those devotions will get sent to your inbox um, every day. They come out every day of the week um, and they'll be from the book of Mark at least for the next three or four weeks as we're uh, kicking off this series. So make sure you're a part of that. And while you're turning there, uh, I want to give you a quick update. Um, I know uh, a couple of uh, weeks ago, we launched the Home Base Initiative, and it was just our way to say, hey, we want to raise some funds uh, to help uh, do some projects on our campus. And so there's things that we're already kind of pulling off. If you see the parking lot stuff out there is going on, the rain's delayed us a little bit. We're widening out that parking lot, getting out to the edge of the plateau there. Uh, the next thing, as, as funds allow, is we'll be upgrading audio-visual in this room. And so up to this point, we've had about a third of the amount that we need uh, given over the last couple of weeks. I'm pretty excited about that. It's been given so far. And if you would, prayerfully consider how you might could give toward that initiative and help us as we're trying to raise about $100,000 to pull off a good many projects around the inside and outside of our campus uh, to be able to house more people on our campus on a Sunday morning. So help us with that. just want to give you that little update. We've got about a third of that money given. So before we uh, jump into Mark chapter 1, I thought it would be helpful for you to understand some of the backstory and understanding Mark and who he is. I think most people, if you were to you know, kind of step up to him and say, hey, who do you think Mark was? I think a lot of people would think Mark was one of the 12 disciples. But Mark was actually not one of the 12 disciples who wrote the gospel according to Mark. We have uh, Matthew and we have John who were part of the 12 disciples. We have two other guys who wrote gospels, Mark and Luke who come from a little bit of a different background, but I want to just introduce you a bit to Mark because I think it's helpful for you to kind of understand the framework as the story unfolds as Mark tells it. Now, yes, Mark is the author of this. All scripture is God-breathed. We know that. God ultimately is the author, but we also know that each of the books that we have in our Bible, by the way, your Bible is one book, but it's one book comprised of 66 different books. And those 66 books were written by 40 different men, 40 different authors, over about a time frame of about 1,500 years. And they're actually written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. But God did inspire and God did work through these men to give us God's perfect word that we have in front of us. And Mark uh, is actually found, he's actually in the Bible. He's in the book of Acts. He's mentioned in the book of 2 Timothy and other places and some of Paul's writings. Paul's writings, and I think this is just neat to kind of think about who this guy, John Mark, is. Now, he's sometimes referred to as Mark in the Bible, sometimes he's referred to as John, and sometimes he's referred to as John Mark, and his name is actually interesting. Uh, John is a Hebrew name, meaning the one whom God loves, and then the word Mark, the name Mark actually comes from a Latin word, which is Mars, the god of war. It's an interesting, uh, uh, you know, name to have your name means God is love and also the God of war okay so he's that's his name John Mark and the reason why he has that name uh, is because his family spoke both Hebrew and he also was schooled in Latin which is actually going to help us in a minute with the story as you're going to see it so remember uh, Mark spoke Latin and Mark spoke Hebrew as well now he uh, actually was a part of the first century church movement. The first time we hear of John Mark is in Acts chapter 12. If you remember when Peter was imprisoned and there, uh, there was an angel who woke Peter up in the middle of the night and told him to leave and he walks out of the jail unscathed and it's, we're told that Peter walked up to somebody's house who was having a prayer meeting. In Acts chapter 12 we're told it was the house of Mary who was John Mark's mother. 
This is how John Mark is introduced to Christ. His mom is one of the leaders. She's actually a house group or a home group leader in Jerusalem in the first century. By the time we get to Acts chapter 13, John Mark is accompanying Paul and Barnabas on a missionary journey. Now, where he gets a bad mark is that he actually had a misunderstanding. He had an argument with Paul, so much so that he leaves the mission field in a huff, and he goes back home to Jerusalem. But eventually, uh, through the help of his cousin, a guy named Barnabas, who's in the scriptures, is his cousin, helps to restore that relationship. Eventually, we have by 2 Timothy chapter 4, we've got Paul asking for Mark to come and minister to him while he is in prison. So there's been a restoration process Church historians tell us that after that, that John Mark eventually uh, he spent time with Paul, but his next assignment was to spend time in Rome with Peter, who was the head of the Roman church. If you remember, again, he speaks Hebrew and he speaks Latin. Well, Peter's Latin wasn't so good. And so John Mark actually becomes an interpreter for Peter in Rome. And after Peter passes away, the church historians, the church fathers went to John Mark and said, Mark, you need to write this down. Everything you heard Peter preach and everything you heard Peter Peter teach about, you need to write this down so that we have an accounting. So actually, the book of Mark is actually the gospel according to Peter as penned by Mark. Isn't that cool? Now, Mark's last assignment was he as a missionary. And this is why I call this the gospel of go. Mark is known as Mark the evangelist. He starts the church in Alexandria, Egypt, and he actually was martyred in Alexandria, Egypt. Egypt as the bishop of that church on Easter weekend (laughs) and his remains are still buried there in Alexandria today it gives you a little bit of insight into this guy Mark no he wasn't one of the disciples but I mean pedigree right he was trained in theology by Paul discipled by Barnabas and then got to hear all the stories of Peter and wrote it all down that's incredible pedigree as you think through this guy Mark, who wrote the book of Mark. How cool is that? So here we are uh, in, uh, in uh, Mark 1 here. Let's start in verse 1. In the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. What a show, right? I mean, verse 7, and this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What a powerful uh, accounting that we have here in, in Mark's gospel. You know, all the other synoptic gospels, Matthew and Luke, they start with the birth of Jesus and give you some kind of like backstory of Jesus' lineage, of you know, his birth or his childhood, we, we run headlong from Mark chapter 1, verse 1, into uh, this, this accounting of Jesus' ministry, and we get the introduction here to the forerunner in John the Baptist. Now, what I want you to see from the beginning is this, this uh, in verse 1, it says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus. That's this point number one. Mark has 
good news. He's got good news. The good news. That word, a good news, is actually euangelion, which is a, a Roman militaristic term that was used when the Romans went to battle and they conquered someone. They would send a runner on ahead back to their hometown to say, hey, y'all, we did it. We won. We won the fight. So the word good news comes from that term of someone who after the battle has been won, after Jesus has, uh, has been resurrected, that one would go back to the hometown to say, hey, y'all, the battle's over. We're victorious. We are winners. This is what the term good news comes from, the good news of Jesus Christ. Think about what we have been called to do. We've been called to share this good news. Now, has everyone you know heard the good news? Do they know that? Do they know what we know about Jesus? Now, because we call this good news, it also presumes there might be some bad news. So I want you to think for a minute, if we know what the good news is of the gospel, and we'll get there in explaining it, and John unpacked some of this already in his message as told to us by Mark. But I want you to think about what the bad news, what is the bad news? The bad news is found in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short, fallen short of God's glory. In other words, as we talked about from Recovery Alive principles, uh, you and me, we're a mess. We're sinners. Pastor, sinner, chief of sinners. Every one of us in the room are sinners. None of us are perfect. None of us have it all together. None of us are, are righteous in and of ourselves. And this is a problem because this separates us from God. God is holy and we are not. And, and the thing we have to come to grips with is there is no one perfect in this room. We have all uh, get, gotten what we deserve by our rebellion. And that, that, uh, that punishment um, is just because we have turned away from God. If you think about it, the definition of sin is disobedience. God has told us what to do, and we turn our backs to him in that way. And this, this act of rebellion and this state of punishment is something that you and I cannot mend ourselves. You cannot do enough behavior modification. You can't pray enough. You can't do enough good deeds to out, out somehow kind of outbalance that. You can't help enough needy people. Uh, you, you can't do enough honest things somehow to outweigh. Because I think a lot of people think that. They go, well, you know, one day I'm going to stand before God, and there's going to be a set of scales, and God's going to weigh out all my good deeds and all my bad deeds. And as long as my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then God's going to let me into heaven. And I just need you to know that is a total misrepresentation. That is not found in Scripture anywhere. What we are told is there is no one righteous no not one all of us have fallen from God all of us are sinners and all of us actually are separated from God now the picture uh, that I've used that I have used and think about in my own mind I go back to one of my favorite places and that's the, the Grand Canyon and and I think about I stood on one edge of that and looked across and I want you to think about that picture of mankind humankind being on one side of that canyon and on the other side is a holy God we've got sinful man and we've got a holy God and this is the bad news you and I cannot cross that chasm on our own there's no way we can't be good enough we can't somehow manufacture or or uh, modify our behavior somehow to make ourselves be in that place on the other side oh but there's good news and the good news is this, you can't do it, but God can, and God did. In fact, go back to the passage here, in the beginning, the beginning of the good news, what? About Jesus the Messiah, 
the Son of God. There are two components already to this good news that Mark is giving us in verse 1. Number one is Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that's been promised. Do you realize there are over 300 Old Testament prophecies uh, pointing to who the Messiah would be, who would come before him, and what his message would be? And guess what? Jesus fulfilled every one of those Old Testament prophecies. Prophecies. This is what was read here in Mark chapter 1. This indented part here is actually a quotation from Isaiah chapter 40, where he is describing who the forerunner would be, who John the Baptist, what he would look like, what his message would be. And that even fulfills a promise about the Messiah that was to come, that he would be an heir from King David, that he would fulfill the prophecies, and that he would be the sacrifice for us. And this is the other aspect about. Jesus, the other part of the good news, it says, Jesus the Messiah, what's it say at the end of verse 1? The Son of God. Jesus came from God. Jesus is the Son of God. As I told you in the bad news, we human beings cannot fix ourselves. There's nothing we can do. No one is righteous. We can't be good enough. And so what's got to happen? Well, God has to step in. God has to remedy this because He is God and he's, only, he's the only one with the capability to eradicate sin from us and to help us cross this great divide between us and God. Let me read you a prophecy from Isaiah 59, verses 12 through 16. It actually explains the bad news and the good news. Listen to this from Isaiah 59. For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Speaking of humanity as a whole. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities. Rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on God, inciting revolt and depression, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. All these things are what emanates from the human heart. Verse 14. So justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. That is, a, that is bad news, y'all. That is like terrible description of humanity. By the way, uh, that was about 400 years before Jesus when this was written. And it kind of describes the news today. It describes humanity. Why? Because nothing's changed. There's nothing new under the sun. Humanity is sinful in who we are. And something has to happen. Something's got to give. Well, here's what happens. Look at the middle part of verse 15. The Lord looked. He saw all this. What? He was displeased that there was no justice. Listen to this, verse 16. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. Why? So what did he do? So his own arm achieved salvation for him. Look, he says, man can't remedy this. What do I got to do? I got to remedy this myself. I've got to intervene. I've got to step in this story, and I've got to rectify it. These people can't do this for themselves. I will work this out with my own, by my own effort, by my own will, by my own plan. His own arm achieved salvation for him. Listen, and his own righteousness sustained him. You and I can't be perfect. You and I are sinners at our core. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, comes down. And he becomes a surrogate. He stands in our place. He is the righteous one. And we're told that when Jesus died on the cross, his sacrifice now can be applied to us. 
His righteousness can now be given to us by faith, by trusting in Jesus. Our sins can be forgiven, and Christ's righteousness can now be applied to us. It's not because you and I are good or better or anything else. It is that we have been given a great gift. And that great gift is righteousness and forgiveness and salvation that God has worked out himself for us on our behalf because we can't do a lick about it. Anybody else thankful for that good news? God intervened. God sent his only son so that we might be forgiven. And this is the beautiful picture here. As Jesus is sent to us, now we have a surrogate. Now we have a bridge to cross uh, that great divide between uh, mankind and God. We cannot achieve and be where God is. So Jesus becomes the bridge. He is all God and all man. He laid down his life by his sacrifice. We now have access to God through Jesus Christ. And anyone who would call on him for salvation, he becomes the bridge. And through Christ, we are declared righteous. And we now have a relationship with God. And that is the best news. I pray you've done that. I pray there's been a time in your life when you acknowledge your need for God and you acknowledge your need to be saved. When you say, God, I am a sinner. I confess to you. And by the way, this is the same message that John the Baptist is preaching. It's going to be the same message that Jesus preaches. It's going to be the same message that Peter preaches at Pentecost. By the way, it's going to be the same message I preach 2,000 years later. And that is, you must repent You must believe in Jesus Christ and you must find the forgiveness of sin in Christ and then respond in that publicly by identifying with him through baptism. This is the beautiful picture here that we have. God offers salvation freely because it was secured on the cross. He did this for his name's sake that anyone who called on him can be saved. Jesus is the bridge. Have you ever trusted in Christ? If not, then why not right now? Why not at this moment surrender your life to Christ? Give him your life. Confess your sin. Confess your belief in him. And trust him for the forgiveness of sin. This is a beautiful reality here. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And then go back to the passage in Mark 1. We are now uh, being thrust into the story of John the Baptist and, and John the Baptist is a part of that redemptive plan. Let's just call John the Baptist phase one. He's the forerunner. He comes before Jesus, and we're given some insight into his message. We're given some insight into what he proclaimed to the people leading up to, leading up to Christ uh, coming on the scene here. And this is point number two. John the baptizer was that phase one of this redemptive plan. And again, go back to what was said, I was, uh, verse, uh, verse 2. Is a quotation from Isaiah 40, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare the way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, in the desert, in the wilderness, in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. So John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. You see what he's preaching. He's preaching about repentance. He's preaching about baptism. In fact, we're told in verse 5, as the whole Judean countryside and the people of Jerusalem going out to him, it says, confessing their sins, they, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. This is an important aspect of John's ministry. He's uh, basically saying this. Hey, y'all, get ready. <laughs> The Messiah's coming. you got to get yourself ready. There is one coming after me 
who has a better message, who has, who has something from God for you, and you need to prepare your hearts. You need to prepare your life. And the image that he gives, he says, make a straight path. Now, I want you to think about uh, a straight path, and what is the opposite of a straight path? A crooked path. Think about Highway 11, right in front of Table Rock. I'm talking straight as an arrow, and then think about Highway 276 going up to Caesar's Head, up by Brevard and over that way. Which one's the straight path, and which one's the crooked path, Right? And, and, and again, this is an analogy for someone's life. Whether you're making good decisions, you're, you're living in righteousness means that you are walking a straight path. In Psalm chapter uh, 5, verse 8, is uttered this prayer. Lead me, Lord, in your righteousness. Because of your enemies, make your way straight before me. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, he's on the straight and narrow? What are they saying when somebody's on the straight and narrow? Making good choices. <laughs> making better choices. They're, they're choosing righteousness. And this is what John the Baptist is preaching. Hey, he's assuming, by the way, that most of the people in his audience are crooked. <laughs> he's like, you guys are riding up 276. I mean, if I were to plot your life choices, you are on a curvy road. God is asking you to straighten out. He's asking you to get things right with God, to confess up, pray up, repent of your sin, turn away from your sin, and turn to God. By the way, that's what repentance is, is turning from something and turning to someone. You turn from your sin, and you turn to, to the Lord. And this message that he's pre uh, preaching is a message of preparation. Make a straight path. You need to straighten out your life. Why? Because the Messiah is coming. i got a question for you, a little little thought, little, little, little thought uh, laboratory here. If you were to plot out your choices right now, your life choices, your decisions, your heart positions, your priorities, uh, things you do when no one is around, is it as straight as this aisle right here or is it more like 276? I mean, is it crooked? You know, you've got to be honest with yourself and God. And where are you? Because I've got to call you to exactly what uh, John the Baptist called uh, the people at that day to. We've been called to righteousness. We've been called to obedience. We've been called to honor God with our lives. And, and by the way, um, John uh, preached in preparation for the Messiah to come the first time, the first advent. Hey, guess what? Um, Jesus ascended. And guess what? He's coming back, okay? And, and that same message is the same message I can say what John the Baptist said in the wilderness. Y'all need to get ready because the Messiah is coming. He's coming back. And we got to make a straight path. We need to prepare ourselves for his second coming just as he was preparing the people for the first coming. There's a heart position. There's some decisions you've got to make and get yourself ready for this. In fact, uh, the two components of preparation uh, that John the Baptist gave are the same two components for preparation that I would uh, challenge you in. He tells people to repent and to be baptized. Go back again. Verse 4. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching what? A baptism of repentance. Look again at the middle of verse 5. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. This idea of repentance, of turning from your sin and turning to God. It's coming clean with God. Have you ever repented? What I mean by that is confess your sin to God and your need for Him. Listen to these two passages. Acts 3.19. This is actually a 
message preached, I believe, at Pentecost. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Listen to this from James 4, 8 through 10. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail over your sin. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. This is a intensely private and personal decision that each of us has to make at some point that we get honest with God and we confess that we are sinners and we confess our need for him. Now this is the thing. You can repent right now in the quietness of this room on your own and nobody would know it. You could. God knows all your thoughts. He knows every, everything about you. He knows your thoughts. You could sit there quietly right now and I would encourage you if you haven't done so to do so. To repent, to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Tell him, pray to him. Say, God, I've sinned against you. I know it, I own it. I'm not just a person who sins. I am a sinner at my core. But I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe he's the son of God. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. And so I give myself to you. I surrender to you. I'm going to turn from my sin and I'm going to turn to you. You could do that right now in this room and nobody would know it. And this is why there is a pairing to this in the scriptures. John said, repent. Peter at Pentecost says, repent and what? Be baptized. This repentance and baptism kind of go hand in hand. By the way, you can get saved quietly, and God will honor that. He'll forgive you of your sins. But the other side of this is, at some point, you need to be public about this. You need to tell people. And the best way to publicly declare repentance is to get up in front of folks and get baptized. We had two folks get baptized in the first service today. They both were sitting in my office a couple of weeks ago. They both gave their lives to Christ. One of them gave their life to Christ during the communion Sunday that we had a couple of weeks ago. And they both realized, I need Christ. I need to be forgiven of my sin. But they also came to that realization, and this is what John is saying, show it. Demonstrate what's already happened inside. And be baptized. Demonstrate. You know, baptism is a beautiful picture. I mean, not only is it like a, <laughs> I tell people, it's like getting a, a bath with your clothes on in front of everybody. But it's symbolizing what Jesus did. When you, when you confessed and repented and confessed your faith in him, Jesus washes our sins away from us. And also when we're being baptized, we're going through the motions of Jesus' death, his burial. I don't hold you under for three days. 0.3 seconds, and then you come up out of the water, and it's symbolic of resurrection. We were buried with Christ in baptism, and we were raised to walk in new life. This is the beautiful picture of baptism, and it's a public way of saying, I believe that, I trust in Jesus, and I have surrendered my life to him. That's what baptism is. Now, just challenging everybody in the room. Number one, have you repented? Have you trusted in Christ, asked him to forgive you, and, and confessed your faith in him? That's great. Have you followed through to declare that publicly through baptism? And this is what John was calling people to do in the wilderness. This is what Jesus preached. This is what Peter preached. And this is what we're preaching today. It is important uh, to make that outward sign of what's already happened on the inside. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus did for us on Easter weekend. So, have you repented of your sins? Have you confessed Christ? And then have you demonstrated the repentant spirit by being baptized? I want you to really think about that and consider that today. Now, the last thing I want to touch on is the last few verses of this passage, verses 7 and 8. 
Basically, if I told you, you know, John the forerunner is phase one, well, now here's phase two. When the forerunner says, somebody else is coming after me. Verse seven and eight. And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now he's, I mean, he is really laying something out there for them because he knew his role. He knew his job was to prepare the people. He knew he wasn't the Messiah, but he had also been given this this special task. He knew this. It's kind of cool. John the Baptist is an Old Testament prophet, but he also gets to become like the first New Testament prophet. He's kind of the bridger himself between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's out in the wilderness, but he's saying, hey, somebody's coming after me. And it's kind of cool that his cousin is Jesus. I don't know if you knew that. His mom, Elizabeth, and Mary were cousins. And so even in some of the other gospel accounts, we get this interaction between Elizabeth and Mary when both were carrying a child. And then they've got to know of each other somehow through uh, you know, their childhood as being you know, relatives. But here we have at this moment, John has a special role to go, hey, you think this is good? <laughs> There's someone coming better, and he's going to bring a whole different level of experience, a whole different level of encounter with God. I baptize you with water. Now, again, baptism literally in the original language means to dunk, to put under, to submerge, to immerse someone. I dunk you with water, but there is one coming after me, and he is going to dunk you in the Holy Spirit. He's going he's gonna to fill you. He's, there's going to be such an encounter with God and his Holy Spirit through this one who is coming that it's going to be better than whatever I could give you. Why is that important? Well, in the Old Testament, there was the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity. But he operated differently in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was only given to special people for special times, prophets, priests, kings. In fact, uh, we have pleadings from David in the Psalms. Don't take your spirit from me because he made some mistakes. Please don't remove your Holy Spirit. He understood and knew what that was about, to have that special mantle, to have that special anointing, to be consecrated, to be set apart, meant that they could encounter God in a special way. Now, I'll just be honest. I've been saved for a long time, and sometimes I take that for granted. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to encounter God in that way? It means I get to commune with God. It means I get to hear. And again, these aren't like audibles. Sometimes it's very specific. I could probably name those on like two hands of very specific things the Holy Spirit told me to do. Many times, the way I've explained to people, it's like a nudge. God gives me these nudges. He helps me when I'm reading the scriptures to understand what I'm reading. He speaks to me and through me. Many times when I'm talking with people, it's like he is just channeling and speaking in and through me. And I don't want you to to scare you. Uh, This word's been hijacked a bit by our culture, but when you're a believer, you are possessed by the Holy Spirit. And he leads and guides your life. And there is a sweet communion there with God for the believer. And John says, hey, Get ready. There's one coming, Jesus. And when he comes, he's bringing the Holy Spirit. I dunked you in water. You're going to get dunked in the Holy Spirit. And that's going to be an amazing thing. What we see is after the resurrection, at Pentecost, what happens? The Holy Spirit descends like a dove upon those believers gathered in Jerusalem. And what happens? It changes them. It is a, he is a catalytic a presence in their life that empowers them, encourages them, helps them in their daily life. And I'm just going to say this. I pray 
that if you confess Christ, that you are experiencing that right now. The presence of God through the Holy Spirit. By the way, that is a great confirmation for folks in the room that you are experiencing Christ like that in His Spirit. Some of you might be going, well, I don't know what that's about. I, if that's true for you, I just need, I need to challenge you. Because we're told in this pro- already here in the prophecy of John that when Jesus comes and those who believe in him will encounter the Holy Spirit who will change them. And if you have not in- encountered the Holy Spirit, I'm going to challenge you and say, have you encountered Jesus? Because an encounter with Jesus brings about an encounter with the Holy Spirit We're told in the scriptures and Ephesians that when we trust in the Lord God that he gives us, he deposits the Holy Spirit into us. It is his presence. We're told in all the teachings on the Holy Spirit that he will lead us, he will enlighten us, he will correct us, he will help us. He's the catalyst in your sanctification as a believer to make you more, to to form you more into the image of Christ's likeness in your life. He is the catalyst. He's the nudge. He's the one that changes you and helps you and molds you in your life. And I, I think it's honestly a fitting litmus test for every person in the room to say, is the Holy Spirit working in my life? Is he, is he leading me? Do I sense him? And maybe you're like, yeah, he used to, but it's been a while. I get that. Maybe that's a call today to repent, to rededicate, to refocus. To be honest with you, when that has happened in my life, God's at a fixed place. Whenever there's a perceived distance between me and God, it ain't that God moved. God didn't change. I'm the one that moved. I'm the one that moved away from that communion. And I'm going to call everybody in this room at this moment, if you find some distance right now, if it's been a while since you've had that communion or you felt the Holy Spirit or listened, heard Him, felt those nudges, this is a call to you to turn back to Him that times of refreshing may come into your life. Because that is the beautiful thing. John the Baptist is going, dude, you think this is great. <laughs> there is something greater to come. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit. And I want each and every person in this room to have him in your life and him operating in your life and nudging you and helping you and guiding you. I pray that that is a reality for you. If not, you need to do some soul searching, friend. You need to do some soul searching. Now, phase one was John the Baptist, the forerunner. Phase two is Christ's work on the cross. Jesus ascended, but here's the thing. There is a phase three. It ain't happened yet. What is that? What do you think phase three is? His return. Jesus' return. And I will say exactly what John the Baptist said in anticipation of Christ coming the first time. Get ready, y'all. <laughs> Make a straight path. Trust him, he's coming back. It's time to get right, it's time to confess, it's time to repent. Some of you need to follow through in baptism and get things right. Let's be right because when Jesus comes, we need to be ready. Walk a straight path. Abandon the, narrow, abandon the crooked ways. And let's walk a straight path knowing that Jesus could come back. Could he come back today? Yeah. Do we talk about enough? No. Be ready. Be ready.